0: Our second reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 and can be found on page 272 of the Church Bible and on your sheet. So 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly, or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest.
1: Well, thank you, Jean, for reading that to us. sure that microphone is pointing in the right direction, <laughs> let's, um, let's pray with uh, 1 Samuel 2 open before us. We read of Hannah praying and saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. And it is our prayer, Heavenly Father, that uh, you will remind us afresh of what a good God you are, how wonderful your faithfulness to us is and that our hearts would be led to rejoice in you afresh this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I was reminded of a uh, story about the Victorian preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Um, there's there's a, a story about how he was talking to a, a, a woman once. He was explaining the good news of salvation to her, about Jesus dying for our sins um, so that we can be fully and freely forgiven. And she was on the point of responding to that message. She was sort of teetering on the edge of the kingdom. And suddenly, she just burst out with something to say. Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, she said, if the Lord saves me, he shall never hear the end of it. Which is a lovely little way of uh, just saying that she would praise him and praise him and praise him and go on praising him for the uh, wonder of salvation. I think Sanna... Sorry, Hannah from 1 Samuel 1 and 2 would have liked that lady because we've got Hannah's song of salvation in chapter 2 that Jean read to us. And I bet Hannah never imagined that um, we'd be looking at these words 3,000 years later on after she first praised the God of salvation. But God is never hearing the end of Hannah's experience of salvation. I bet she's praising him today. In fact, he will never hear the end of Hannah's praise. I wonder if it's too much of a stretch of the imagination to think that eternity will echo with Hannah's hymn. He'll be singing it in heaven. Well, she's certainly going to teach us to praise God today with her. And it's certainly my prayer that God will never hear the end of the wonder of salvation from us as our hearts rejoice in him. Let me walk us through the prayer in three different stages. The first stage, I'm going to give the heading, Micro Salvation. And we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 for that, because those verses express Hannah's elation over a small-scale salvation in her own experience, when God granted her relief from the agony she was passing through without children. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. It's sometimes said, true religion is a matter of personal pronouns. And I think these verses bear it out. My heart, my mouth, I delight in your deliverance. That's the way Hannah speaks. And that's not something she learned from a book. It was her experience that was talking. You notice, too, in that verse, the point of contact with what she had lived through. Just have a look at verse 1 again and see if you can spot the, uh, the note of realism in that verse that's so true to what she had been through. Can you see it there? If I was a teacher, I'd get you to put your hands up. Um, It's always a bit risky. You never quite know what's going to come out of people's mouths when you ask for that. But uh, if you were here last week, you cast your mind to what we saw back then. The phrase that rings true to what happened to Hannah is when she says, my mouth boasts over my enemies. Do you remember that uh, slightly unpleasant woman, Penina? Uh, Hannah's husband, Elkanah, had married another woman, Penina, possibly because Hannah had not had children. And Penina took the chance regularly to remind Hannah that she was number one in the child-rearing department. The jibes, it says, just went on and on, year after year. I guess the pain of unwanted childlessness is something that many people go through. It's particularly tough on women with the hope every few weeks that this time round it might be different and then the the feeling of uh, disappointment. And in Hannah's case, it seemed to get compounded by the religious festivals as they came round, the regular cycles of those. That really got Hannah down. There was an extra layer of grief perhaps for her then. Maybe Penina is under God's blessing and I'm not. Did she think that way? So what a relief when that lie from Satan was exposed and she was assured by an answered prayer that God was her saviour. God was shutting her enemy Penina's mouth and the mouth of the great enemy with a capital E, Satan. I love the way as the prayer goes on, the way heart and head go together in her prayer. Just look in verse 2 at how her, her mind, her head is engaged, how full of the truth of God her prayer is there. Verse 2, this is our verse of the month, isn't it? There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. That's part of the prayer. It's addressed to God, isn't it? There is no one besides you. But it's, is it, does it sound funny to you, this? She's telling God things about God, which is interesting, isn't it? She's talking to him, but she's talking to him about him. So there is devotion, praise, my heart rejoices in the Lord, and doctrine as well. Devotion and doctrine, head and heart. Sometimes people think, oh, those two shouldn't be together. If it was very doctrinal, full of the truth of God it wouldn't really be praise and adoration and worship. Or they might think, um, if there's lots of worship, I love you, Lord, then it'll be slim on doctrine and truth. But no, Hannah, those two come together, don't they, with her? Doctrine and devotion, head and heart. Hannah fuses the two in her prayer. So she's telling God, in the language of love, all about God and it doesn't seem strange to her to do so. She didn't need, in one sense, to tell God about himself. He knows. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. There's no rock like our God. None of that comes as a surprise to God, does it? But the good thing about Hannah saying that and praying that is that she knows it afresh. And you think about it. We just said the creed before the reading, didn't we? It's one of the good things about saying a creed together week by week, you internalize those truths. You do them together in the presence of God as part of our worship and that fusion of doctrine and devotion. Elizabeth Elliot, I wonder if you've heard of her. She's probably best known to us as the wife of Jim Elliot, who was a martyred missionary, a missionary to the Alka Indians in the Amazon jungle. And his wife, Elizabeth, obviously when he was martyred, was widowed of him. But actually she was widowed twice because later in life, her second husband, who was a theologian called Addison Leach, he also died. And she said uh, to a bunch of Christians at one point, how helpful saying the Apostles' Creed was to her as she mourned the loss." of Dr. Leach, Um, she used the creed to answer the question, what things have not changed even though my husband has died? Answer these great, wonderful truths about God. Specifically, Hannah would tell us things about God in her prayer, things like his holiness, his uniqueness, his dependability and faithfulness, that he is a rock. He's 100% reliable. She had experienced that in the micro-salvation, the answered prayer that saw this little baby boy, Samuel, born to her. And she'd tell us, wouldn't she, build your life on any other foundation than God, and you are certain in the end to be disappointed If Hannah had built her hopes for security on a large family, lots of children, that wouldn't actually be a secure foundation for life. It would be about as solid as a meringue. If Penina had built her identity on her children, that too would be about as solid and safe as building on a meringue. No, if you build on God, you're safe. Good times or bad times in life. Either one of those can change, can't they? But God doesn't change. He's the rock. That's where to build your life, says Hannah. I should know. He saved me. Now, that's the micro salvation. A bit of a shift of gears. We've already sort of referred to it, I think. But in verses 3 to 8, Hannah moves from the particular, her situation, to the general. General truths about God and how He works. So she's moving out more widely from her experience, the micro salvation, to universal truths about how God operates in His world. And it's interesting at this point, she is speaking to other people, not to God. Uh, you can see that in verse 3. This is her talking to others. Don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. I wondered whether that was addressed to Penina. Actually, it's in the plural. It's addressed to others as well, to all who are arrogant. Taking the crown from God and then putting it on their own heads instead. What folly that is when God sees and so often upends things in this world, exactly as he had done for Hannah. So the general truths follow. Verse 4, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. A reversal in uh, both halves of that verse. Very important to remember the first half, the bows of the warriors are broken. It happens often in our world. But important to remember it when we hear about atrocities and the appalling consequences of ordinary people's lives. I read about this week um, the Nuremberg trials in 1946. There was a point after those trials when several Nazi war criminals uh, had been executed on the 16th of October, and 14 bodies, including Riventrop, uh, Keitel, and Goering. I think he actually managed to commit suicide beforehand. He sort of cheated the legal system by doing that. But all the bodies were delivered to a Munich crematorium, and that same evening, a container holding the amassed ashes was driven through the rain into the Bavarian countryside. And after an hour's drive, the vehicle stopped, and the ashes were just poured into an unmarked muddy ditch. So a great reversal happened. You think about it, five or six years before that, those men could have dominated or intimidated almost anyone. And then that night, a few raindrops was all it took to wash them away. An upending of the mighty. The bows of the warriors are broken. We need to remember that. We need to remember that as we read the papers or the news stories today. And remember that God stands behind those sorts of events, the rise and fall of empires and dictators. This is something that God does. But he doesn't just bring an end to the boasting or cut the tall poppies down. He lifts up others as well. Let me read verse 4 again. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. And continuing, those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. In fact, we'll see that uh, next week as we go on, Hannah would go on to have five more children after Samuel. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. The Lord brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and... And wealth, he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honor. So the reversals go in both directions, up and down. But why do they happen? Well, the reason comes next. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world's. So if there's unpredictability in life, and there is, it is a predictable unpredictability, if I can put it like that. God is sure. God is the rock. Nobody should find security in anything or anyone but him. Because God has set this world up to run with these regular reminders that he alone is the rock talked about reading the news stories it doesn't take much imagination to work it out does it you think of all the different ups and downs of the last few years elections or referendums that don't turn out the way we thought they might and it might even be a a tiny margin a four percent margin that upends our expectations or it's a pandemic um, or it's an invasion in a part of the world we don't know too much about maybe and suddenly that affects the price of oil one day or the price of wheat and other commodities the next day all around the globe and we face the unpredictabilities and we moan about them but have you ever stopped to think maybe it is a mercy that these unwelcome reversals that come our way remind us that we are not in control we never were in control might it not be a mercy to be made aware of that maybe the dark days also point us to the fact that God has also brought many unexpected blessings into our lives as well. We're less good at spotting them, I think. And that's why Hannah's prayer is such a help to us. We miss all the instances of God's kindness. When we did pray, and even when we didn't pray, or when we pray for the wrong things and God gave us something better that we weren't expecting, and he was kind to us in answer to prayers. The God who reigns over all does notice the little people and take action for them. He doesn't have to do it. Uh, nobody else might notice them, but he does. And Hannah knew that she was living proof of that. So we move from one stage, from Hannah's micro-salvation, onto God's general government of the world. Now, let's move on a further stage and move from that sort of general government of the world to God's macro salvation, if I can invent another word, in verses 9 to 10. Let me read on in verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. I'm calling this the macro salvation because at this point we move from the present tense to the future. This is talking about the great day when God will put everything right, all that's wrong in the world will be sorted out. The grand finale, when he delivers his covenant people and shatters his opponents and judges the ends of the earth. And do you notice how he's going to do that? He's going to do it through his king, says verse 10. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That is where with all the chopping and changing and ups and downs, that's where history is heading. It's it's so important, this. I mean, we're reading 1 Samuel 1 and 2, and it's not just a nice story as we read it. Oh, lovely, Hannah's got a son now. How lovely that is. And we sort of uh, smirk, and we quite like the idea that Penina's got to eat humble pie as well. That's good news, too. And there's Samuel, sweet little boy. He's happily topping up the lamps with oil for Eli the priest in Shiloh. And back in Ramathayim, wherever that is, uh, life's quietened down a bit there, and Elkanah's two-up, two-down house there. Um, a sort of small-scale story like that. It's not just a happy ending for Hannah, this story. Something much bigger is going on. God's kingdom is advancing. I wonder if you spotted in verse 10, that last little bit of her prayer, um, What's going to come later on in this book of 1 Samuel? He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. There's going to be a bit of anointing going on uh, before too long in 1 Samuel. Because in fact that toddler, Samuel, the boy in the tabernacle, was the very one who in a few chapters would anoint two kings. King number one, Saul well, he would actually be deposed in the end in favor of the man after God's own heart, King number two, David. David gets enthroned within a few chapters. But of course, even that's not the full story, is it? That would lead to God's enemies being defeated, yes. But it wouldn't be a judgment to the ends of the earth, which is what these verses are talked about. These verses 9 and 10 promise a bigger deliverance than ever King David could give. It must point on to David's descendant, Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of this promise. He is God's supreme Messiah, God's anointed one. And you can't help but notice, and we talked a bit about this last week, the way Jesus' entry into the world is parallel to what had happened for Hannah and Samuel isn't it? Hannah's baby boy Samuel is born it was an impossible birth she was barren uh, when Jesus was born it's even more impossible it wasn't just infertility that had to become his was a virgin birth but what's impossible for men is possible for God and you get that pattern of reversal in his birth you get it supremely of course with Jesus In his death as well. One of the things I like about the story with Hannah is the way she came to see that her agony had a purpose. It wasn't meaningless. I'm sure it was way beyond what she knew and understood at the time, but she knew that God had a plan and that she was part of it, and that the boy who came in answer to her prayer was part of it as well. We don't always know what God's purposes are when we're going through the mill and suffering. But he certainly has a purpose, even in suffering. Hannah knew that. And I suppose from the vantage point of Jesus Christ, the great son of David, we're in a position to know it even more clearly. Remember that cry of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There he is hanging on the cross. He's suffering. And at least... Partly in his mind, as he suffers, there's that question, what's the point of it? Is there a purpose? Why am I suffering? Why am I forsaken? Well, you and I are the answer to that question, aren't we? With the answer to that prayer of his. He was suffering, forsaken, for us. And he was exalted for us. And because the king who suffered is exalted he can help us face the day of judgment when everything that's that's wrong is put right uh, and we can face that day without the fear that we'll be the wrong side of that judgment because he's borne it for us. So that is the macro salvation that this chapter of the Bible points us to. I mentioned in the notices we've got this Thanksgiving Sunday coming soon, uh, two weeks' time. I want to encourage all of us to take a leaf out of Hannah's book, uh, please, and to thank God for the way he brings salvation from situations which are, humanly speaking, impossible. So I want to ask you, have you experienced those micro-salvations in your life? The answered prayers where your agonies and struggles had the great blessing of actually bringing you to God in prayer. You probably wouldn't have prayed if you weren't going through the suffering and the agony. You prayed and you saw his answers. Will you thank God for those micro-salvations? But even more important, have you experienced the macro-salvation from Jesus Christ? Do you know that he died for your sin? And that because of him, you can be 100% sure, confident, now and for eternity. You know he's your savior. Have you got to that point? Well, if you have, make sure you praise him. And that if the Lord has saved you, he will never hear the end of it. You'll go on praising him. Let's pray together. My heart rejoices in the Lord. Will you please give us songs to sing about what a wonderful Savior God you are. And we pray that those songs would overflow to others and overflow to your praise and glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.